If you want to, if you want to see a group of uh, church people look confused and disoriented, play Joy to the World while everybody walks in in July. <laughs> and like maybe a, maybe forty percent of you were here when Mitch explained that, and the rest of you were still kind of trickling in. And it was like people didn't know if they were supposed to sing or not. Is this an accident? What's happening in here? Uh, reality is, we sing something like Joy to the World. The Lord is come, let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. You sing that in July, and people act as though if it's not tied to 30 degrees and potentially some snow, then you're singing something foreign. But there's nothing in a song like Joy to the World, there's nothing in the vast majority of Christmas music that ties it to a season of the year. It's tied to an event, right? It's tied to the incarnation of Jesus Christ, of God becoming flesh, making his dwelling among us. Emmanuel, God with us, is what Christmas music is tied to. And that event, the incarnation, isn't a one-time seasonal sort of thing. It's something that has impact throughout all seasons. It's something that has impact throughout all time, every day of the year. In fact, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ you should probably wake up thankful for the incarnation every single day. Now, most of us kind of relegate it, at least the music side of it, we kind of relegate that whole thing to like the month of December or some maybe to the day after Thanksgiving and on or some of you really like to get into the holiday spirit and so you start after Halloween and you progress all the way through November and December. But even at that, that would be two months of through song or through decoration or whatever the case might be of really directing our attention to the birth of Jesus Christ, which should be an event that captivates our attention as believers all year round. T.A. mentioned when he was up here that we're in the middle of walking ourselves through the story of Scripture from Genesis all the way through Revelation. And we've been in the Old Testament for almost a full seven months now. And what we've been looking at, what we've been seeing, is the story of God redeeming humanity from their sin. That's what the Bible is about. That's the major narrative of the Bible. But what the Bible presents in the midst of that narrative should be a captivating picture of the glory of God. And A great definition of glory, God's glory, that I I came across just uh, here in the past couple of weeks is that the glory of God is God's holiness made visible. Holiness meaning otherness. That's the defining characteristic of who God is. He is other. We cannot fully fathom or comprehend him in our human minds because he's so different than we are. He's so vastly other from humanity that we can't fully wrap our minds around it. And so what we get are these visible pictures of it, that God's glory makes visible his otherness, his holiness. And the story of Scripture, beginning to end, gives these incredible pictures of God's glory. In fact, it begins in creation. Genesis 1.1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. 
And after six days of creating all of the physical stuff that makes up the container that we exist in, we're told in Genesis 131 that God took a step back and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. The reason for the very goodness of it isn't that God's giving himself some sort of cosmic eternal pat on the back like, hey man, you really did a good job there. It's that creation in its unbroken intended form is a perfect picture of the glory of God. In fact, we're actually told that that's what creation was supposed to do. Revelation, our Romans 1.19, for what can be known about God has been made plain to them, them being humanity. For God's invisible qualities, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world through the things that have been made. And what does that mean? Romans goes on and says, therefore we are without excuse. We're without excuse to be ignorant or unaware of the glory of God and everything that he has created. And in its unbroken form, that would be the case. But it doesn't remain unbroken. In fact, after the glory-depicting act of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, there's a glory-stealing act in Genesis chapter 3. And what happens is that this new kind of darkness sets in. Not a sort of physical darkness like what existed before God created light in Genesis chapter 1, but instead it's a spiritual darkness. And it comes in the form of sin in Genesis chapter 3. And once that darkness sets in, it's not as though God's glory is now somehow unevident. It's that we don't see it. See, one of the effects of sin is that we become unaware to God's glory all around us. Almost like fish in water. Fish spend their entire lives surrounded by water and yet have very little, if any, because they're not really self-aware, idea that water is what they exist in. We spend the entirety of our lives surrounded by the glory of God and everything that he has created, and yet we're more or less entirely unaware of it, and it's because of darkness, specifically the darkness of sin. So what begins to play itself out all throughout the Old Testament is that God begins to push his glory into the light. He begins to pierce darkness with the reality of his holiness made visible. And the first of that was in creation. The second really clear depiction of that takes place in an interaction that God has with a man named Abraham. God appears to Abraham and he has a conversation with him. In fact, he gives Abraham a calling. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we're told that God said to Abraham, go from this country, you and your family and your father's house, to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you or through you, all the families or nations of the earth shall be blessed. And what God does is that he creates a specific people for himself. 
a specific people who are going to have one overarching purpose. And that one overarching purpose is that God is going to make his glory clear to all the nations of the earth through this one specific group of people, Abraham's descendants, the Israelites. But there's a problem right off the jump, and that's that Abraham is old. His wife is old. They're barren. They can't have kids. But God makes this promise. You're going to be a great nation, so you're going to have a child. I'm going to give you this land that I'm going to show you, and I'm going to bless you so much so that you become a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And after having this conversation with the Lord, Abraham exclaims, is anything too hard for the Lord? And of course, the answer is no. And so he continues on. He creates this people for himself. And after a number of years, they find themselves in slavery in Egypt. And maybe one of the clearest depictions of God's glory in the Old Testament comes in the story of the Exodus. The Israelites leave or flee from Egypt. They've been in slavery for years. The work has become harder and harder. And in Exodus chapter 7 through 12, God brings a series of events called plagues upon the Egyptian people. And at the end of those plagues, it culminates in an event called the Passover. And following the Passover, the Israelites go running out of Egypt. And we're told that the Egyptian army is pursuing them. And it's in the midst of that, as God is comforting Moses, their leader, that God says, here's the reason for all of this, Moses. Here's the reason for all of this, Israelite people. He says, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen. You see, it's not just in the act of creating a people for himself or creating a world for himself, but it's in the very act of preserving that group of people that God pushes a picture of his glory into the darkness of sin. But the story of the Bible isn't just that God's going to push a little bit of his glory into the darkness of sin. The story of the Bible is that God is going to redeem humanity from their sin. He's going to overcome the darkness at some point. After the Israelites have made it across the Red Sea and they're about to receive the law, the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, from the Lord. A a group of commandments that the Lord gives to his people so that they will be set apart, that they will be holy and other, that the world might see the glory of the Lord through them. Moses actually falls to the ground following the uh, evisceration of the Egyptian army. Do you know what he says first? It's in Exodus chapter 15. He gives this long song of praise to the Lord, but he begins it this way. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Gloriously. The Israelites, due to their own sin, spend 40 years wandering around in the desert. After an entire generation of Israelite people have passed away, they arrive at the edge of the land that the Lord has promised to give them. And the first thing they've got to do is cross the Jordan River and go into a city called Jericho. So they send a few spies first. And those couple of spies that interact with a woman named Rahab, and the first thing that Rahab says to those spies is this. It's in Joshua chapter 2. She says, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And as soon as we heard of it, our hearts melted with fear. And there was no spirit left in any man or woman because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth below. 
See, it's not just that God has made his glory evident to the Israelite people. It's not just that he displayed it clearly to the Egyptian people. It's that his glory has become evident even to a group of people living in a land that the Israelites have not been to. So much so that they're saying our hearts melted when we heard of the greatness of your Lord. Over the book of Joshua, God literally gives the promised land to the Israelites. He goes before them in a number of battles. They're supposed to clear out the promised land, and they do an amazing job. Actually, the Lord does an amazing job of being faithful to the promise that he's made to Abraham to give him a land. But they don't do a complete job of clearing it out. And because of that, what results is that the Israelite people end up worshiping the gods of the people who still inhabit Canaan, the promised land. And it's in the midst of that sin that they find themselves subjected or subjugated by the other nations around them. And in the midst of their sin, in Judges chapter 3, verse 9, the Israelites cry out. And it's a refrain that plays itself out all throughout the book of Judges. In fact, seven times you see almost the exact same line. But the Israelites cried out to the Lord. And the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Not only has God been faithful to his promise to give the Israelites a land, but he's also been faithful to save and preserve his people in the midst of it. His glory pushing through the darkness of sin. After the era of the judges, the Israelites demand a king. And God says, I can tell you right now, you don't want a king. So what will happen if you have a king is that they're going to force your sons into military service. They're going to take from you of your goods and of your money. They're going to amass for themselves great wealth at your expense. But if you truly want a king, I will give you a king. Only let me pick him. Let me select for you someone who is after my own heart, someone who's going to lead you to see my glory and to worship in response to it. And ultimately, it culminates in the greatest king in Israel's history, a man named David. And as Samuel, who's the priest at the time, goes to the family of a man named Jesse and ends up anointing David king, this is what God encourages Samuel with. Jesse's sons are parading in front of him. They're tall and handsome, and they look the part of a king. And God says, do not look on their appearance or the height of their stature, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And in the person of David, we get this really clear picture that God can display his glory through the faithfulness of one of his followers. And that's exactly what David does throughout his time as a king of Israel. He faithfully follows the Lord and makes evident the glory of the God that he serves. One of the things that David wanted to do the entire time that he was king is that he wanted to build the Lord a temple, a permanent place where the presence of God could dwell with his people in the land that he promised them. But he doesn't ever get to do that. His son Solomon, the next king, does. And after building this lavish and beautiful temple for the Lord, Solomon gives this prayer and declaration of dedication of that temple. And he says, O Lord, God of Israel, you are the only God in the heavens above and the earth below, keeping covenant 
and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all your heart. And then he bursts out, heaven and even the highest heaven cannot contain you. And he ends up in the middle of this prayer giving a statement about exactly what is the purpose of this temple. He says that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. And after that, the presence of the Lord in a cloud descends upon the inner portion of this temple, the Holy of Holies, and dwells there with God's chosen people in God's promised land. Why? That all the nations, all the peoples of the earth might see the glory of the Lord, a visible picture of his greatness and his holiness. Unfortunately, the era of the kings goes further and further and further south as king after king after king raises up to power and does an ineffective job of helping God's people respond to his glory in worship. Instead, the people choose to chase after the darkness of their own sin. So God sends these prophets who almost seem angry at times as they demand that the Israelites return to worshiping the Lord, that they repent and turn from their sin, that they see the light of God's glory instead of hide in the darkness of their own brokenness. But even those prophets are ineffective, and so finally the Lord brings about what the prophets had been saying for uh, a number of years, which was that God was going to bring judgment upon them. And so they get forced into exile. They're kicked out of the land that God had promised them, and they're carried into exile by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And it's in the middle of that exile that someone rises up that's a lot like David. He's an individual that's faithful to the Lord, and God displays his glory through him. His name is Daniel. And Daniel spends the entirety of his life in exile, and he interacts with various kings from various kingdoms. And Nebuchadnezzar, one of those kings, after a lifetime of interacting with Daniel in the midst of his faithfulness to the Lord, in chapter 4, ends up proclaiming, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and blessed the Lord Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. He does according to his will among the hosts of the heavens and the inhabitants of earth and none can stay his hand. A Babylonian individual seeing and responding to the glory of God in the midst of Israel's exile proclaims that glory to all of his people. He does according to his will in the heavens above and on the earth below, and none can stay his hand. A picture of God's glory amidst the brokenness, and the darkness of sin. Eventually, the Israelites, a remnant of Israelites, get to return to their promised land. And they go back in a few waves, and they rebuild the temple, and they reinstitute God's law, they read his word, and they rebuild the walls that surround the city. And at the very end of what is the historical section of the Old Testament, Nehemiah stands before the people of Jerusalem, the remnant of Israel. He sees the temple, and he sees the walls, and he's heard Ezra read from the book of the law, and he makes this Statement. He says, you alone are Lord, and you have kept your promise. For you are righteous, ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Makes this proclamation about just how faithful God 
is. And the Old Testament ends with this mixture of both anticipation, but also a realization. That if God's ultimate purpose in creating everything is to display his glory, and if the brokenness of sin has made it difficult for humanity, the pinnacle of that creation, to see his glory, something's going to have to come in and overcome the darkness of sin. All of these things were ultimately insufficient. They cast clear light to the glory of the Lord, but they could do nothing to overcome the darkness of sin. Not a king, not a priest, not a prophet, not a judge, not a temple. All of them ultimately falling short. And the book of Nehemiah ends with Nehemiah making a statement. It's more of a plea to the Lord. And it's much more than one man's plea to God. It could well encapsulate the plea of the Israelite people throughout all of the era between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. Nehemiah just says, Remember me, O my God, for my good. There's a 400-year chunk from the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament where there's no revelation from the Lord. There's no prophet who comes and speaks. It's a silence period. But the silence begins to be broken as you flip over to the New Testament. You flip over into the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, one of the gospel accounts, and what you begin to get is like a thunderstorm warning. You know, when a person comes on the television or you get a notification to your phone that something is coming and you better be prepared, that's what begins to happen at the very start of the New Testament. An angel appears to a woman named Elizabeth and her husband, Zechariah, and he says, you're going to give birth to a son who's literally going to be the forerunner to the Messiah. And Zechariah and Elizabeth are kind of uh, flabbergasted by it. And yet, in seeing the Lord working in this sort of way, it leads Zechariah to say, I have seen the salvation of the Lord, for he has raised up a horn of salvation from the line of David, just as the prophet said. And an angel appears to Mary and Joseph and says, you're going to give birth to a son, and his name's going to be Jesus, and he is going to save his people from their sin." And Mary is so overwhelmed by what she's hearing that she ends up proclaiming in a song. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord for he has done great things to me and for his holy name. What's coming isn't another king. It's not another piece to the law. It's not another flickering light against the backdrop of the brokenness of sin. What is coming is a savior, the Messiah. What's coming is a blinding light of God's glory. What's coming is God himself in flesh to not just shine a little bit of light amid the darkness of sin, but instead to push the darkness out. And he comes in the form of a baby, born in Bethlehem, to a virgin named Mary. He gives, he's given the name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. 
Christmas is the celebration of the culminating of God's plan to redeem humanity from sin, to show the ultimate display of his glory in, what, in all that he has created. And maybe the easiest way to see the reality of that is to look at the impact it had on the people who witnessed the event. This is the nativity story that we read every year, right? There were some shepherds in a field nearby, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And the shepherds were afraid. We're told that they had great fear, but the angel says, Fear not, for behold, I come to bring good news. That will be great joy for all the people. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior, Christ the Lord. And then it's like heaven can't contain itself any longer because the next thing that happens, we're told, is that there's this multitude of heavenly hosts that burst into the sky and they're singing. And you know what they're singing? Glory to God in the highest. Here it is. The ultimate depiction of the glory of God on display for all of humanity in the birth of a baby over there in that city, Bethlehem. And we're told that the shepherds, I don't know what they did with the sheep, but they went to see the baby. And they get there and we're told that they see everything just as they had been told. And in response to that, they end up leaving there glorifying and praising the Lord. We're also told of these magi or wise men who live thousands of miles away but see this star that rises. And knowing something of the Old Testament scriptures, they want to follow that star and see exactly what's going on. And so they make their way to Jerusalem. And when they arrive there, everybody's kind of confused about what's happening. In fact, there's a king ruling at the time, Herod, who's trying to kill all of the babies under two years old because he knows what that star is all about. And so this is what we're told. The Magi said, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And they lay these gifts where the baby is laying. There's another individual in the early portions of the gospel accounts named Simeon. He's a priest, and he's been told by God that he's not going to die until he sees the Savior. And Mary and Joseph bring the baby Jesus, and this is what Simeon proclaims. For my eyes have seen your salvation, a light of revelation for the Gentiles, and the glory of God for your people Israel. Not only is the redemption of sin available for all of humanity, going to be available for all of humanity through this baby, through this child, it's the perfect picture, the display of God's glory. He's not recreating God's glory. He's not re-illuminating something that had been lost for years. No, he's perfectly depicting what has always been evident the glory of God in all of his creation. So what do we do with that? We're going to read through the Gospels over the next nine weeks here as a church. If you've been reading along with us in the Bible Initiative, that's where our reading turns beginning this week. If you haven't been reading along with us, now would be a great time to jump in. Over the course of the last seven months, I've talked about how the Old Testament casts these shadows of Jesus forward toward the New Testament. Well, no more shadows. Maybe you read those and you're like, Tim, I don't ever see it. I just hear you talk about it on Sunday mornings. No more shadows. 
No more trying to figure out what is the Old Testament saying about Jesus. Now we're reading about Jesus himself. He is here. He has come. And so what do we do with that? The first thing we need to do is see. I don't mean see just like physically with your eyes. Our hearts need to see the reality of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he has come to do. Whether you're someone who's here this morning and you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, or you're here this morning and you've not ever done that, I pray that over the next nine weeks you would read with us through the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of John and allow your heart to see the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. John Piper says this, The reason we do not see the glory of God is not that the template is faulty or that God's glory is not shining. The reason is the hardness of our heart. Our problem is not that we lack light or that there's insufficient light shining in the scriptures. Our problem is that we love the dark. It's like your child who sleeps through seven alarms before school is supposed to start. And you've had enough of hearing it. And so you walk into the room. And what is step one when you walk into the room? You're flipping on the light switch. And your child in the bed throws the covers up over their face and they squirm and they kind of, ah, why? The human heart, left to its own sin, would see the glory of the light of God in Jesus Christ and have the same reaction. Why? I'd prefer the darkness. The first thing we need to do is our heart needs to see needs to see the beauty, the light, the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. The second thing we need to do is savor. Having seen Jesus for who he is, we need to savor that. If you're someone who's placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that means not just rushing through the gospel accounts. Yeah, 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 I know he's healing people, he's feeding people, he's doing some miracles, he's saying some weird parables. Allow your heart to savor those. That is the very presence of God making his dwelling among humanity coming to bring redemption for sin. Allow yourself to savor it. And then last but not least, we need to submit. And submit is a word that we kind of bristle at a little bit. But the reality is that if you've seen the glory of the Lord in the person of Jesus Christ and you've savored him for the salvation of your soul from the reality of your own sin, then submission is a joyful act. Why would you not want to give yourself to the God who's given all of himself to you? Why would you not be obedient? So what I want us to do this morning is I want us to spend some more time singing. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up, and I'm going to warn you right on the front end, some of these are Christmas songs. (laughs) But they're not Christmas songs relegated into a corner of the calendar. They're songs that celebrate the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the coming of the ultimate light of the glory of God in order to bring redemption for the sin of humanity. And if that's not something you can sing about in July, check your pulse. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you ought to wake up singing joy to the world every day because God himself came to save you from your sin. Let's stand up and sing together.